Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat. How are we doing today? Good. So something interesting happened to me on Wednesday this week. I, I woke up and, uh, I mean, I hurt all over and I thought to myself, I thought about doing some push-ups yesterday. This must be what 36 feels like. Welcome. It's finally here. This is the rest of my life. And then I got to work and I walked up these stairs and I thought, I, I really need to like, lay down for a while. And it didn't get better. It got worse. And so the next day I went in and uh, turns out, the flu found me and loved me well. And so I, I've been told to tell people that I do not have the flu. I've been on Tamiflu. I'm recovering from the flu, uh, but I still feel like I get hit by a bus. All right. So today's going to be a little different. I'm going to sit on the stool and we're going to talk in an even keel way. I'm going to be a little less witty and less funny. Sorry, everybody. Uh, you can laugh randomly if you want to just to encourage me and at best, it's an encouragement. At worst, people might think that we're some joy-filled Pentecostals. It's a win-win, okay? Um, <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to power through Leviticus because that's the only way you get through it. So welcome to the shortest Sunday you're probably going to have a crossroads in a long, long time. And all those people said? Amen. That was a trap. That was not the right response. <laughs> we'll make up for it next week. Don't worry about it. Um, really, though, I mean, on, on a side note, this isn't even in the outline. This is just bonus. Uh, Today, you know, feel pretty badly and, and really, really tired and talking about it backstage. And it just reminded me of what the gospel is. We put a lot of time and energy in the Sunday mornings. Most churches do. And there's this balance between production value and authenticity and how much we give and how much God uses what we give. And, and the gospel is just this, that you bring what you have every day to God and you watch what he does with it. As a father and as a mother and as a son and a daughter, as a pastor and a friend, you show up and say, God, this is what I have today. And we watch God turn what we have into something beautiful. It's the two fish and five loaves story. So this morning is what we're going to do. We're going to show up and we're going to open some scripture and we're going to talk about Leviticus excitingly. And we're going to say, God, do a work in and through us because you're bigger and better than my faults and my tiredness. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we started a fun-filled, riveting series on Leviticus. And, and what we did was we kind of looked at it through some different lenses because the way that you see the scripture informs how we read the scripture. And most people, when you get to Leviticus, you think, how long till I can get to Numbers? And that's saying something, you know, when you're looking forward to Numbers. It's a census book. And, and we talked about looking at it in a different lens. So Leviticus is a book of laws for people. It's a book of laws for people, but we said if you really back it out and look at the context, it's, it's more than that. It tells a story more of different ways to act before God, but why they had to do it in the first place. And what's really interesting is if you look at the first five books in the Old Testament, so it's called the Torah in Hebrew, means teaching, or we use the Greek words for them, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the Hebrew words for those same books are different, and it's usually derived from the first phrase or word of importance in the book. So for example, Genesis starts like this. It says, in the beginning, God created. And the Hebrew word for Genesis is barashit, which just means beginning. 
And then you go to Exodus, and the beginning of Exodus is these are the names of the sons of Israel who entered Egypt, or Shemot is the Hebrew name, which literally means names. It's the people that went into Egypt. And then you get to Leviticus. And Leviticus starts like this. It says, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him in front of the tent of meeting. And the Hebrew word for Leviticus is vikra, which literally just means called. And we began to look at Leviticus, not necessarily as a book of laws, which is really dry and not necessarily super applicable to us word for word, but we began to look at it through the lens of what it was supposed to do. And we peeled back the layers a little bit and said, well, what if it's not just about the laws, but what the laws were intended to do in the first place? And if you follow the biblical story, God saved a people. He brought them out of slavery, out of 400 years of slavery, and they cried for help for 400 years, and God finally delivered. And when he did, he went to the mountain with Moses and said, I've delivered you, I've rescued you, you are my people, my people that I've saved. Because you're my people, live into my ways, because I've shown you that I'm good, and they didn't do it. Before the ink was dry and the Ten Commandments, they started worshiping another God, because they couldn't live up to God's standard of good. And God has a problem. It's the same problem we have with God. A holy God has a hard time being present with the people who aren't holy. A God that created good can't stand to be in a broken place that he didn't create. And so the book of Leviticus starts by saying God called to Moses from the tent. And the entire book, the entire book is about God saying, we are going to be present together, but here's how it needs to get done because you broke my covenant. The entire book is about God calling his people back to his presence. It's a really beautiful picture of what God does to the Israelites and how he wants to relate to you and me. And so he drew back the lens and says, this is a book of rules and regulation. And if you look at it through the lens of grace, which is how it was given, it's really a beautiful picture of a God who says, don't live into laws because you have to earn my approval. I already rescued, live out my ways because I've shown you that I'm good. And so it's a book of grace. (laughs) It's a book of God saying, I am good and I have already rescued you, so live into my rescue. It's a book of law so that people might be present with their creator again and live in his land. It's a really, really beautiful telling of what it's like to find and live in the presence of God again. And so the lens last week was one of grace, and we said that Leviticus tells us the story of uh, the grace of God fulfilled in Jesus. It all points to, it all points to ultimately what Jesus did for us, that we might live in and with the presence of God today, because he's holy, and here's a newsflash, we are not. Today we're going to look at another lens. I love this quote by Tozer. He says, what comes to our mind when we think about God, it's the most important thing about us. We're going to look at Leviticus through different lenses, and and if we went through Leviticus verse by verse, I'd be the only one left when we got done. So we're going to use different lenses week after week, and next week is the lens of worship and the lens of compassion. We're going to keep doing this thing, but if you read through Leviticus, there's one that calls out to you, if you will. It's kind of a theme of Leviticus. If you were to read through just the book all on your own, by yourself, and you actually made it through the whole thing before saying, I get the gist after chapter two and switching the numbers. If you make it through the whole thing, you're going to come out the end and saying, there's one common theme to the whole book, and it's simply this, holy. It's the concept of holiness. The thesis for the book is found in Leviticus 19 verse two. It's a chapter on what it looks like to be holy, and God tells his people six words, be holy because I am holy. 
So today we're going to talk about six words. Because I think if we're going to understand the book, we have to understand holiness. And when I, when I use the word holy, there's two kinds of people that hear that word in different ways. The first kind, love rules. And they hear that and they look around and they say, that's right, you people need some rules. You're lawless, you know? And you have people like me that can literally feel the walls of fun closing in all the way around me. And holiness becomes more of a weight than it does a delight, a duty over what should be a pleasure. And so when we talk about holy today, what I want to do is talk about how they saw it as Jews. I want to talk about what it meant in the Old Testament. I want to reconcile this idea of the holiness of God and the love of God. I want to talk about why it was good. And why when he said, be holy because I was holy, they didn't hear some kind of shame and they didn't hear guilt and they didn't hear what they weren't. They heard what they hoped to become. Before we get into that, we have two goals at Crossroads every Sunday morning. We are going to come together and we're going to open the scriptures because in the scriptures, we see the character of God displayed. In the scriptures, we see the beauty of the God that we think is worthy of worship. And whether you've read through Leviticus one time or 50 times, and you haven't read it 50 times, don't lie, this is church. Whether you've read through Leviticus multiple times or not, and you've read through 19 too, multiple times or not, you're never gonna get to the end of understanding the God of the scriptures because he's bigger than you. And that's a beautiful thing. I need my God to be bigger than me. If he's not, he's not worth worshiping in the first place. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. And so we open the Bible and we try and learn who this God is. It's worthy of our worship. But our knowledge doesn't just end in Jesus' Jeopardy trivia answers. Our knowledge and the knowledge of God always, always, always finds ultimate fulfillment in an increased influence in our lives and worlds because to truly know something is allowed to change you. And so we want the knowledge that we take of God to be practically applied to our lives so that his influence might grow in our world. That's what it means to experience God, which is our second goal this morning. We might open the scriptures and say, God, you're good. And because you're good, we see your influence change our lives. Because we live in a broken world and we serve a holy God. So we're gonna take a minute at the top and uh, we're just gonna pray. <laughs> we're gonna pray that, that you might hear the spirit of God this morning that he might actively speak to your spirit and give you delight in his character that might overflow into increased influence in your life. And then I ask that you pray for me, you know, because all the stuff, all right? So let's pray. God, I'm thankful just to be here to talk about holiness and Leviticus. I'm thankful that you're good. I'm thankful that you speak through the scriptures. I'm thankful that no matter how many times we've studied the concept of holiness, and we'll always be enamored by the depth of it. That you might deepen our understanding and give us more joy in that concept today. If you're comfortable, I'd ask you to take a couple seconds and you say a silent prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit gives you a joy this morning as we open the scriptures and teaches and grows you this morning as we learn more about the God who's worthy of worship. I also ask that you pray for me. I might do a good job talking about holiness, <laughs> increasing our delight in holiness, giving us a joy for God's holiness as a people of God who he calls to be holy.
pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. We're in it together. It starts out like this. I just read it. Be holy because I am holy. Six words that kind of define the book of Leviticus. Here's the problem is I don't think in the current cultural landscape we have, we really identify with holiness in God as much as we used to. I think if you go back to that Tozer quote and you ask people, how do you see? What is one word you think of when you think of God? I think we live in a New Testament world and most people will look at you and they'll say, I think God is loving. God is love. It comes from 1 John 4. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been fathered by God and knows God. The person who does not love does not know God because God is love. And we seemingly have this juxtaposition between a God who loves and a God who judges. A God who loves and a God who scorns. A God who loves and a God who is wrathful. I was on Facebook this week. That was my first mistake. And I uh, was reading through some threads. And a friend of mine, uh, she's a Christian posted on a pastor's post. And the pastor saw something on Facebook that he really didn't appreciate. It was a post that was a little lascivious, I guess. And he just said, hey, we're called to something better than this. And maybe this isn't the best thing to post for families. It's not Flower Mound friendly. You get the gist. And uh, my friend who knows Jesus posted and said, how dare you do that to this pastor? Our God is a God of love, not judgment. He says, our God loves all people and doesn't judge anybody. That's what Jesus did. You should do the same thing. I'm disappointed in you as a pastor, right? I don't ever comment on Facebook because it never leads to something good. <laughs> ever, ever. Uh, but it got me thinking a bit about how we interpret God today. But the one word we use to describe it, and seemingly there's this tension between the holiness of God and the love of God, and they don't interplay as much because the love of God is the character of God. And what First John means there is literally not that God is loving, it means that God defines what love is. So God cannot act, cannot act outside of love. Everything he do is loving because he perpetually defines it. That's beautiful and that's good. And we see it culminate in Jesus dying for you and for me to repair the relationship that we have with a holy God. But the scriptures tell a story that's a little bigger and deeper than just that God is loving. Isaiah 6 says, and one called to one another, these are angels, and there's a picture of heaven, and he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. In Ezekiel, he says this about God, my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I'm the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Seemingly, what I see is that the Old Testament talks about the nature of God being holy. And the New Testament talks about the nature of God being loving. And I want to reconcile those two things. Because how can they coexist at the same time? How can they both interplay if we seemingly think they're dichotomous? I think it's interesting. Uh, the word holy in and of itself just just means set apart. We've talked about it a couple weeks ago. We talked about Sabbath. It just means different. It means different than what you see. And so fundamentally, when when we talk about the holiness of God, there's two nuances we got to discuss. One is the attribute, and then two is how the attribute manifests itself in the world we live in. So the attribute of God means that he's holy. It means that he's different. It means literally that the God that we serve is absolutely fundamentally different than all the other things we see around us. God is different than you and different than me. And fundamentally, that is a good thing because I've tried to be my God for 36 years and today I have the flu. It doesn't work out well if you think you're God. 
It leads to brokenness and it leads to pain and it leads to injustice. Read the news. So when it says that God is holy, the picture the Old Testament paints of the God that we serve and follow is that he's different than what we see all around us. He's different than the world that is mired in brokenness and injustice. God is different than you and me. He's different than the angels. God is fundamentally singular in nature, meaning no one is like, no one can comprehend, and no one will ever be like God. That's why he's worthy of worship. It means that God is in of himself worthy. He's set apart. And the beauty of his set apartness is that this standard of good that he lives in that is different than all of us and all of creation was passed down to people. It says in Psalm 24, three through four, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. What the psalmist means there is who can aspire to the ways of God that are good. So God holds intention. He holds in and of himself the standard for what good is, holiness. It's who he is all the time. I think what I love about that and what I love about Leviticus is what we see is the goodness of God on display. And if you read it through the right lens, what you see is that the goodness of God, the standard of God, the set-apartness of God, the holiness of God hasn't changed. It hasn't changed from Leviticus to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It hasn't changed. It looks different, but it hasn't changed because the book, we talked about it last week, Leviticus was written to someone else, but for us. So we dig into the principles of God's goodness that we see in the book of Leviticus, knowing full well that those principles, that standard of good still applies in our world today and hasn't changed any because God defines what good is and he does not change. So when we see principles about women and slavery and morality and sexuality in Leviticus, it might look a little different because it was written to a different people in a different place, but the standards behind it are the same. The goodness behind it is the same. So, for example, I lived for a while with three dudes in Louisville, you know? And uh, <laughs> I like to think that that house was, you know, all Christian guys, so we tried to live into the ways of Jesus, tried to love each other well. I moved out of that house and into one with my wife, and I try to live in the ways of Jesus and love my wife well. Do you know what looks very different? Love in the context of a house with three dudes in Louisville and love with my wife at our house in Dallas. <laughs> you know that? It looks, if I tried to show my wife the same level of love in the same ways that I showed these three dudes in Louisville, I don't think I'd be married much, much longer. It changed over time, even though we're expressing the same love, goodness, kindness, gentleness to begin with, just because the way it looks like changes doesn't mean the sentiment behind it or the standard changes in the first place. Leviticus is written to show us the standard of who God is that he set. Why? Because he's set apart, he's good, and he's holy. And that's how he created. And we see it throughout the Genesis 1 and 2 narrative. He said, I'm going to create with this ultimate good. That's why everything he creates, he says, is good. It's good. He gets to man, he says, it's very good. And he gets done creating, and he said, I've created out of an overflow of my holiness, my distinctness, my set-apartness, my goodness. I've created, and everything is good. We talked about this about a year ago, but that concept. It's a Hebraic concept of peace or shalom. He got done. He said, everything's in harmony with one another. It reflects my set-apartness, 
which is our job as ambassadors of creation, is to reflect God's goodness to the rest of creation. And we said creation literally in his peace, the shalom of God, the peace of God, that the harmony of God that he created with us, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That is what God's holiness is. It's a reflection of his distinctness, otherness, and goodness. The problem is that we didn't keep that standard very long. And you probably know the story. Adam tried to be his own God, made a bad decision. And when we try to be our own God and we don't recognize that he's different than us, things go terribly wrong because only one being can handle the weight of being God in the first place. And sin entered the brokenness of God's peace. It's how we explain why there's injustice and pain in the world. So then we said sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. C.S. Lewis said it a different way. He said, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what straight is. That God's holiness is a straight line that is good. (laughs) And we live in a crooked, broken world. And there's a tension there. And that's the tension that Leviticus has written in. That's the tension of the world that we live in that doesn't live into the holy ways of God. Let me tell you something. God created things reflecting his holiness and he looks down at a world that is unholy it doesn't make him happy. One author, I love this quote, he says, how could God who delights only in that which is pure and lovely not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? So God's relationship to himself, God's relationship to holiness is that he is distinctly set apart in other, and of those things, if things don't measure up to his standard or his level of goodness, he's not happy with it. And I'm glad about that, because who is happy at injustice and pain and sin? Who is? One author said, the glory of God's good creation has not been obliterated by the tragedy of the fall, but it's been deeply shadowed by it. The history of our race is, in large, large part, this interplay of light and shadows. And so the first nuance of or facet of holiness is that God's holiness, his distinctness, his otherness, is who he is all the time and how he created. The problem is we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a different one. It's been mired by sin, broken because we tried to be our own God, invited in injustice. You can fill in the blank with all the adjectives you want to. And so the holiness of God takes on an action. The attribute of God's holiness takes on an action. And an action in the scripture is often the repairing of God's broken things to whole things or the reconciliation of God's good creation. And that's called justice throughout the scriptures. God getting back and repairing the broken things towards good things. It's why he says, Isaiah 61, for I, the Lord, love justice. It's the action of God that represents the attribute of God, the repairing or the reestablishing of the goodness that God created with. It's kind of like, let's go back to love. I love my wife. That is an attribute that I have for my wife. The action of my wife looks like I love my wife so much on Valentine's Day, we hit up Chili's two for 20. You know what I'm talking about? True love. Joking. I had the flu. Um, but, but seriously, it's the love that looks like it manifests into action, and that can look like whatever love looks like, walks or talks or expensive meals or vacations or whatever you want it to. So the 
attribute of God is the holiness, the goodness, the differentness of God. The action of holiness in a broken world is the justice of God to reclaim his goodness. That's why he says in Micah 6 to his people, oh man, what is good and what the Lord really wants from you. He wants you to carry out justice, to love faithfulness and to live obediently before your God. He says in Deuteronomy 16, follow justice and justice alone. This idea of holiness and justice are linked as the action of the attribute in a broken system and world. So I go back to the Facebook comment about this person saying you can't judge people because God calls us to love. And I'd say you probably don't have a full understanding of what justice is, what holiness is, what judgment is. Because to see brokenness and not call it out for brokenness is not very loving in the first place. So in the Old Testament, when you see the justice of God, when you see the acted upon attribute of God's holiness, which is justice and his righteousness, what you see is they interpreted those things as loving. Psalm 33 says it like this. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. Those two words paired together are meant to include all of the things that point us back to God's good ways your personal one and then a justice one, a a, a kind of a a jury system one where we need to repay for the brokenness in the world. The Lord loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of his unfailing love. Why is the earth full of his love? Because God loves justice. What they see is a link between the justice of God, the holiness of God, and the love of God. Those two things aren't dichotomized at all. They're one in the same, two sides of a different coin. So when we talk about holiness, what we're talking about is a fuller picture of God's love. Holiness isn't a ball and chain dragging us down shamefully through how we messed up. Holiness is a call to be into what God called us to be in the first place. It is not something that's a dread. It's our hope and our delight. But our problem, our problem is that we, we look at limits, especially as Americans, and we don't see love. We see bondage. We look at limits and we think that it's very, un- I look at limits and think it's very unloving because we don't understand the consequence of the limit. My daughter is 18 months and she started to play this new game, which is take sharp things and run. And let me tell you something, not so fun for mom and dad. We were sitting in the kitchen the other day, we were standing, she was sitting on the island and she had my car key in her hand. And kids, they don't know their own strength and they can't stop themselves very quickly. And so she was holding something and, and something she was holding like fell off her arm and she was applying upward pressure. She had my key in her hand, key pointed up, right? And Sarah and I were talking, my wife and I, and that thing fell off. Her arm just like shot towards her face. And, and that key came about a half, half a centimeter from just shish kebabbing her eye, you know? And, and we both, Sarah and I, thought to ourselves, oh my goodness, that was way too close. We had this moment of, I mean, I want to love a one-eyed child, but it's going to be harder. You know, that, that thing that, I mean, my daughter is adorable, but you know, it's not adorable pirates. And so we really had this idea that we got really close to messing up. And you know what my daughter doesn't get to do anymore? Play with keys, Right. So we took it away and she likes to run with pins and we take those away and all of a sudden this started and every time we take away a key and we take away a pin, she cries like CPS should show up right now, you know? She cries like we don't understand her plight and we don't want what's best for her. She sees a limit as unloving instead of looking at a limit as a symbol, as a sign of love. The Old Testament looked at the at the glory of God manifested through the sheer idea that God had limits. They saw God as loving because he put limits on what they could and couldn't do. That, that's 
Leviticus. Holiness led to limits, which means that God loved them in the first place. One author says it like this. This then distorts our sense of what justice is all about. It's not just condemnation for the bad, but restoration of what is right, what is necessary and good, and bad consequences distributing accordingly. I wonder what happened if we shift our view of the scriptures and instead don't look at limits as something that's holding us back, but something that's setting us free, something that's a sign of God's love, not meaning that he's void of loving us in the first place, you know? Because I fight that battle all the time. Every time I get in my car, I see a speed limit. I think it's holding me back from my freedom and good, you know? What happens every time if we drive by a speed limit? We just say, thank you, I love you too. It gets awkward quick, but it's the idea that it's there for your good, not for your demise, and I miss that often. So if we read Leviticus, and we read rule after rule after rule, and we see limit after limit after limit, and we see this theme of holiness that starts to weigh on us, and if we don't see it like they saw it, In the scriptures, if we don't see the holiness of God as a sign of the love of God, as it limited our destructive behavior, if we don't see that, then we miss the point and we dichotomize love from holiness. And really, God says, no, 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 they are the same thing because I built you for something. Live into it. Stop hurting yourselves. That's why it says in 2 Chronicles 20, 21, sing to the Lord and praise him for the splendor of his holiness. As they went out, at the head of the army, saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. There is this tie throughout the scriptures of God's holiness and God's love. God's love, they are not separated. They are one and the same. And so if we then look at holiness with delight and not duty, with this idea that it means that God loves us, not that God's void of loving us, it changes how we see the entire book. And what we see in the book of Leviticus is really two things from this kind of holiness, from these kinds of limits. One is I think we see that holiness by and large is costly because we live in a broken world. I can give you verse after verse after verse, but in chapter 19, chapter 19 is kind of the banner chapter for the limits that God puts on his people to live into holiness. He says, when you gather the harvest of your land, you must not completely harvest the corner of your field. You must not gather up the gleanings of your harvest. You must not pick the vineyard bare. You must not gather up fallen grapes for your vineyard. He goes on and talks about days of the week. He says in verse 30, you must keep my Sabbaths and fear my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Both those things, both those things are requirements for God's holiness for the Israelite people. And both those things cost them something. Both times there, we're going to talk about gleaning in two weeks, but both times there, God says, leave something behind. Don't be the most efficient. Don't work all seven days of the week. My holiness costs you something in the world that doesn't value my holiness. I think the first thing we see when we look at God's holiness and start to delight in his limits because he is good and different, the first thing we see is that holiness in this world costs us something because this world doesn't always reflect God's goodness, otherness, set-apartness, holiness. So it's a pretty simple question that I've been asking myself is how is my living into God's holiness costing me something? And then that cost then isn't necessarily bad, but it's beautiful because it's a sign that God is different than the world we live in. And I need him to be because I look around and see a lot of brokenness. I think too, the second thing you see from holiness throughout the book of Leviticus, one is that, like I said, it's gonna cost you something. And two, it is about all of your life. So you can keep reading in chapter 19 if you want to. 
just to sum it up, he's going to talk about like how you love your wife and how you parent your kids and how you give offerings and how you sow your fields and how you treat your slaves and how you dress in the morning, noon, and night. The one thing we see from the holiness code in the book of Leviticus is that it is prevalent throughout every single facet of your life. No part gets missed. So when we talk about Leviticus as a community of God pursuing the ways of God, I think we have to note that Leviticus is all-inclusive of all you are. There are no areas of your life that God's holiness doesn't get to shine a light on. It's all of you. And if you see God's holiness as a hope for who we can become and what God created, that's a beautiful and good thing, one that we want to happen, not one that we're afraid of exposing. And so to be holy then is to fully delight in God's ways in all areas of our lives. It's not to be afraid of it or think it's a weight on us or a ball and chain. It's a beautiful expression of all things that God hoped we would be. And we get to pursue that together when we pursue holiness, when we pursue God's otherness, his distinctness, his set-apartness. I think, too, what about that phrase, be holy, so we have the what there, be holy, and all those things we talked about. And then he follows it up by saying, because I am holy. We're done with two whole words, guys. We're going to get through with this in no time. Uh, be holy, because I am holy. Throughout the scriptures, God always speaks to the why behind the what. And Jesus primarily came in and said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said. Because as a people, we like doing things and asking motivation questions later. We like to see results and then how we got there and why we got there doesn't matter as much as where we got in the first place. We're a people that are driven by deadlines and not necessarily by motivation. God is the opposite. He says, I want your motivation. Because if your motivation is correct, then you'll never miss the mark in your output. So he says, be holy because I am holy. He doesn't just provide us an example example. He provides us the motivation for the example we're seeking to set and live out in our world. The problem is that so often our motivation is not God. And when that happens, <laughs> sustainable holiness is impossible. I went to a Bible college and um, they had two goals, I believe. One is to graduate you and two is to get you married. And I think it was in that order. Literally, I was on the 17th floor of this all-guys dorm and uh, you'd look down in the plaza and it was in downtown Chicago in the concrete jungle and there's two different you know, places that they had grass that they had built up in a couple trees. And it literally spelled, I do, with how they you know, worked around all the landscaping. And it's funny because whether we want to admit it or not, at least when I was growing up in the church world in college, we told stories all the time about how like your best good is marriage. And marriage is good. Your best good is something we have to challenge. I had friends of mine that would stay in on Friday nights as girls. They would join baking clubs because they wanted to prepare themselves for marriage. And I thought to myself, one, I want to bake, right? <laughs> and, and two, I thought, what happens after you get married? Here's the problem is if our motivation for pursuing God is somebody else, what happens when that somebody else fails us? It's the story of Israel. If you know how this thing progresses from here, they take the land, they conquer the land, they settle in the land, and they look around and they say, we're not like other people, we really want to be like other people. And God said to them, I'm going to be your king. You don't need one. It's going to be me. It's going to look different. That's a good thing. Do you know why? I'm different. If you follow the story in 1 Samuel 8, they ask Samuel, their prophet, please, please give us a king. I know God said he's our king, but we want a real king. And God, and I'm paraphrasing, basically says, I'm going to give it to him, but tell them it's not going to be good for them because they will be at the whims of who leads them. 
And here's the one thing I know after living 36 years and being in church world for 10, 11 years, it doesn't matter how good pastors are or people are, people will let you down. And so when our motivation for holiness is other people, whether it's to get married one day or to impress people, or be a good mom or dad, it will one day fall short. And then where are you left? God says, here's your motivation for holiness, me, me, I'm it. That's why he says throughout the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, he says all of these tasks for his people. And then he says, why? Here's the why. Because I am the Lord. Here's the why. Because I am your God. He talks about loving your mother and father in Leviticus 19, three and four. Don't turn to idols. Don't make gods of cast metal. I am the Lord, your God. When he says, don't harvest your fields in certain ways. He says at the end of that, I am the Lord, your God. He says in chapter 20, you're to be holy for me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. The problem is we don't check our motivation and we just look at our output. And God's saying, your motivation matters. And in a conversation of holiness, that's a pursuit of my differentness in a world that's broken and needs my differentness. Your motivation for holiness has to be me because it never goes away. So we're left by asking ourselves tough questions about what's motivating us towards holiness. And God says it's knowing me and my beauty and my grace. Because that way, wherever you find yourself, wherever you find yourself, you'll still have that motivation to keep pursuing the hope that is my holiness, my goodness. He said, so be holy for I am holy. One author says it like this, justice on earth flows from justice in heaven. Our recapturing of God's holiness in this world happens because we understand who God is. And he's worth it. So as we have a conversation this morning on God's otherness that's needed, on the hope that is his holiness, one, the what is pursue those things, but two, the why has always gotta be because God is good enough because God is beautiful enough, because we believe that God is worthy of that pursuit in and of himself. And finally, he says, be holy because I am holy. I think a third thing we see in the middle of this conversation of holiness from the theme in Leviticus as we look at the book, it's kind of how we continually pursue. So I talked about uh, the differences in the Hebrew and the Greek names for the first five books. We went through each one of them and they kind of take on a concept or principle that tells the story of what that book is. And we got to Leviticus and we talked about how it was called because it was calling his people to be present with him again. When you get to Numbers, the first chat verse in Numbers is now the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the wilderness of Sinai. And the word literally in the Hebrew for the fourth book in the first five is Midbar, which means wilderness. I think we live in a place that thinks that God called us to be holy and we're going to pursue God's holiness because he's worth it. But we are on our own to do it by ourselves. It's the elf on the shelf model of seeing God interact with us. Be holy, now go and do. I'm going to check back in in six weeks and I want to see marked improvement, all right? We have this idea that God left us out there to be by ourselves. And when you look at the next phrase, when God is present with his people again, what we see is this idea of, of wilderness. And if you know the story, what that does, in the wilderness experience for the Jews was one simply to learn dependence on God because they didn't depend on him. 
If you track that story as it keeps going, they're gonna get to the promised land that God gave them. And there's 12 spies he sends in in Numbers 14. And the 12 spies go in and, and two come back and say, we got this. And 10 come back and say, they're really tall. We should probably just wait them out, you know? And, and God says, you have not learned how to depend on me. And they say, we can't beat them. And God's like, yeah, you can't. That's the point. Welcome to life with me for the glory of my holiness. And so what we see when we look at the story of the Jewish people, when God says, be holy because I am holy, he's calling us not only to use him as our example and our motivation, but he is the sustainer of our holiness as we enter into a joint relationship with God to live out holiness through the power of his presence. Because when the Jews walked through the wilderness, Every single day, you know what they needed? God. Every single day, God led them by fire and God led them by clouds and God literally rained down from heaven their food. They could not have made it without God. It was all about dependence upon God. And we have this conversation about how we are supposed to be holy because God is holy. Sometimes we think it's our responsibility and God will check back in to see our progress. But what God says is, I go with you, I go before you. My presence is what sustains you, always has, always will. Because you know what I can't do on my own? Be holy. (laughs) I run through problems that are bigger than me, desires and temptations that I can't say no to. But God says that with my spirit, you have already overcome. And this is where it points to Jesus, like all of Leviticus does. Because that Jesus came and lived a life that we couldn't live, that said no to temptation, and actually lived a holy life in the middle of an unholy place. Jesus is our example that we look to for those moments when we want to be holy, but don't know if we can be. It actually says in Hebrews 12, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings to us so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Why? Because he's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. (laughs) And if you know what Jesus says when he left to his disciples, he says, I'm leaving so that my spirit might be with you and go before you. The same spirit that rose me from the dead is the power that you have to walk in my ways from here on out. What does it mean to be holy because I am holy? To live into God's good ways and the hope of his creation because he's worth it by the power of his presence that he's promised the people who follow Jesus that we see in and through the life of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of what the church is called to be. Be holy because I am holy. And is it different? Absolutely. Does it paint a beautiful picture of who God is? Yes. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. If I had my choice of all the blessings I can conceive of, I would choose perfect conformity to the Lord Jesus, or in one word, holiness. (laughs) You know? It's this concept that we get to live up into. There's a book, it's a really good book, really old book, really good book by um, W. Tozer. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy. And I just kind of want to end with this um, paragraph from The Knowledge of the Holy, when he talks about the beauty of holiness. And, and how we live it out as followers of Jesus. He says this, neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure And then raising the concept to the highest degree we're capable of, God's holiness is not simply the best we know, it's infinitely better. 
We know nothing like divine holiness that stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. Only the spirit of the holy can impart to the human spirit the knowledge of the holy. So we live in a place where God said to his people in the wilderness, be holy because I was holy. It was how he showed value and love to his people. It was how he said, live into the hope of what you can become, what I've created. This is good for you. Might you live that way because you've seen my goodness? Might you live that way because my presence goes with you and is your power to live out my holiness? Might the other people around you see that you're different because I am? So my prayer today is simply that may our spirits be woken up to the beauty of holiness, to the motivation for our holiness, which is God, and to the power with which we live into holiness, which is a spirit that lives in us and goes before us. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for your holiness. I'm thankful that it's hopeful. I'm thankful that it's loving. I'm thankful that it's good. I'm thankful that it's different. Might we be a people that see holiness for what it is. Not a weight we have to live out, but the hope of who we can become, of how you created the world to be, of all the good things that set you apart from the bad things that we see every day. Might we be a people that has a passion for your holiness. And may we be encouraged knowing full well that you go with us and you go before us. And you invite us to the power of your presence to live out your ways so that people might see that you're different. They might see the beauty of your holiness. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.